join this fight because it is worthy. It is worthy because when you know your efforts are making life much better for people, that you are having a positive influence within this human ecosystem, there's joy to come from it. Hey there, welcome to another episode of Impact in the 21st Century, a podcast by Simbi Foundation. If you've listened before, welcome back. And if you're new, thanks for tuning in. My name is Aaron, and I'm the host of Impact in the 21st Century, a podcast that celebrates the impactful work of thought leaders around the world, shares the stories of the inspiring individuals who are behind it, and teases out how we can all lead more impactful lives. Today's guest is Dr. Charles Ouba, CEO of Action Against Hunger US, an organization working to combat the global hunger crisis. Every year, Action Against Hunger provides emergency hunger support to over 25 million people through their programs in over 50 countries. I was so excited about this conversation and couldn't wait to learn from Dr. Charles about his journey from remote Ghana to spearheading Action Against Hunger US, the reality of hunger in today's world, and how we can all contribute to combating global hunger crisis in the 21st century. But before we dive into the episode, I'd like to tell you about an organization behind the creation of this podcast. Simbi Foundation is a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education in refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide essential technology, digital learning materials, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to power entire schools and communities. Feel free to learn more at simbifoundation.org. And if you like the episode, consider donating to this impactful organization. Thanks again for listening. Dr. Uba, thank you so much for taking the time to join today. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure to connect with you. And, uh, you know, the team and I have been so looking forward to having this conversation. So thank you for joining. And where are you joining from? From Washington, D.C., my office in Washington, D.C. Fantastic. Okay. So before we really get started with this conversation about global hunger, I I wanted to ask you if you could define the word hunger. Um, for us and, and how you and, and Action Against Hunger define it and, and what it means to you. So I'll give you a definition from, from a very practical perspective. When you grow up in a community with your parents, physiologically it gets to a point in time where you crave for food because you need it to grow. When that food doesn't come, physiologically you are stressed. And so guess what you, you want? You want more food and the food doesn't show up for hours and hours and hours on end. Without having that food, you're physiologically deprived. During those process, you're actually experiencing hunger because your body wants it, but the food is not available. So that's how I have seen hunger from many, many communities and in my own community. Understood. And out of curiosity is, based on the research that I've done, I understand that um, hunger is something that you've personally experienced as a child growing up in, in Ghana. Is, is that something that you'd feel comfortable speaking more to? Yes. And that's why I started the whole definition of hunger from my own perspective. Growing up in Ghana, especially during the, the hunger season, right? The hunger season is where, you know, we've done the harvesting already. Um, we have food to eat. But then it is time for us to be able to then cultivate the land. So you use your seeds and others to cultivate your land. So between that and the next harvest is actually the hunger season. That's where most farmers and most vulnerable communities suffer. I was part of it. And there were times when I didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. My body wanted food. I longed for it. I craved for it, but it wasn't coming. Very uncomfortable. And so from my own perspective, it's not something that any child should ever go through. Should it be available anybody? anywhere, anytime. And Charles, which area of of Ghana did you grow up in? So I grew up in the central region of Ghana in the forest belt. And so my parents were all farmers, smallholder farmers, you know, living with them, growing up with my cousins and community members. But these are smallholder farmers. So in terms of the the land that we're cultivating, it was very, very small. And so you have to you know, take a portion of the land to be able to produce food, you know, food that you're going to eat, but also mm-hmm. to see if you can have, you know, cash crops like cocoa, you know, to be able to grow, to be able to have cash. 
And if you don't have that land, it's difficult. That's what my parents were going through. We didn't have a lot of land. They didn't have enough money even to buy additional land to be able to then you know, cultivate that food. So it was quite stressful. And, and when you say smallholder farmer, how, how much land are, are we referring to? So on the average, you were talking about only about two hectares okay. for most smallholder farmers, only two hectares. Now, in some cases, they may go up to about three or four. In fact, there are some farmers who don't even have land at all. So guess what they do? They have to go to someone else to be able to rent land from them. And mm-hmm. so in addition to, you have to pay for the land before you can cultivate on, on the land. And those are some of the challenges, systemic challenges within communities all over Africa and Asia and Latin America that people go through. And I experienced those things growing up, you know, first time in Ghana. And so the, the, the plot of land that, that your family would farm, was that close to your house? So we lived on the farm. You lived on the right? farm. So we lived, we lived in the forest, but so we lived, so call it a village. Mm-hmm. So that's where we, we, we grew up. And then we'll go to school in a different town. So anytime there was a vacation, we'll go to the village to be able to then farm with my parents. And then when it was time for us to be good, be able to go to school, then we, you know, we traveled miles and miles and miles away by car to live in a different place where there was access to, to go to school because the village where we were growing up, there was no school. So we had to go and live in town where we would then be able to have access to school. I understand that you owe a, a great deal of gratitude to, to the Ghanaian education system for, for the free elementary or, or primary school. Yes. So I'm really a product of a very good policy which came up in the 1960s mm-hmm. of free primary and middle school education. If it wasn't for that policy, I would not have been able to go to school because my parents were poor. My parents themselves did not go to school. Neither my father nor my mother set foot in a classroom. So here we are, we have children, they have me. What, what was I going to do? But then because there was a policy of primary and middle school education, it was free. So guess what? I enrolled. And that's when everything else started. And Charles, if, if that policy had not been put in place when it did, what do you think your trajectory would have been? Do you, do you think you would have been stuck in, in the agricultural? Uh, would you have followed your parents' trajectory? Most likely. Very difficult to tell where I was going to be because life has got its own circumstances and other. But clearly, I can be certain that, you know, if it wasn't for that policy, I'd probably still be back, you know, uh, at the village where, you know, I grew up, uh, perhaps cultivating cassava, cultivating plantain, cultivating cocoa. How my life will be, very difficult to tell. But I probably would say that's where I was probably going to end up. So this free um, education, primary and middle school education, was just what just got sent in my case to be able to take me out of uh, those surroundings, to be able to help me to be where I am today. Understood. And just, just going back to, to the food on, on the farm for a moment. So w- what type of, of crops were for, would your parents grow? So you, cassava? Cassava, plantain, cocoa yam. Mm-hmm. We, would, we would grow other types of yam. Uh, especially those within the forest belt, will grow some pepper, tomatoes, uh, to be able to have them dense of vegetables that we need to be able to make some some food for ourselves. So I'll say the staple uh, during those days, and even now in most parts of the place where I grew up, actually cassava and plantain. Those are the two. Rice is new. We didn't eat a mm-hmm. lot of rice growing up uh, on the village because we didn't grow rice. And so for us, it was the plantain, the cassava, the yam, the cocoa yam that we actually fed on. You know, the, the thing that I find quite interesting about these cash crops is I've spent quite a few months living in Uganda, living in, in very rural communities where, where you're eating plantain and cassava all day. Um, I mean, if, you, if the community has the money, then you start adding proteins. But if they don't, it's, it's carbs. But these days, you walk into the high, the most high-end vegan grocery store, and they sell plantain chips and cassava chips, and it, it's just interesting to see that that full circle. Very interesting because 
growing up, those were considered to be food for the poor. Hmm. Uh, most people did not want to eat it. But I think people have come to know some of the nutritious values, say plantain. And so it's now okay for people to be able to eat more of those, right? And, you know, it comes in slices uh, like uh, plantain chips and even, even cassava chips that people are beginning to, to eat these days. So, yeah, so yes, you're right. Not only is, is your early life, I, I find particularly inspiring in, in the challenges that you've overcome. Uh, to, to get to where you are, which which we'll get to, but th- there's another important kind of arc in your story, and and that relates to you having this opportunity to get into to go to high school. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share this part of my story. Very significant. So, I had finished elementary school. Um, I had done well, you know, in elementary school, so I had, my grades were good. But then there was no way for me to be able to go to secondary school. Nothing, because my parents couldn't. Fortunately, then I traveled from where I was living, the village, to go to Takaradi in Western Region, where my uncle actually was living and uh, was a, a fisherman. So one fateful day, my uncle's brother, you know, was a policeman, comes home speaking with me and then asks for my grades. I show it to him. He shows it to his brother and says, why are we allowing this young man? Uh, at the time, I didn't know what they were saying. Young, this young man with potential to, you know, just walk around and do nothing. So then my uncle, the fisherman, said, "Well, maybe then we can help him to be able to go to school." But then his resources were just enough for me to be able to go to school for just a semester. I mean, Ghana having followed the British system, a lot of our schools were boarding schools. Our day schools were not that, you know, very um, common those days. So mm-hmm. I had to go to a boarding school. So he had enough money for me to be able to go to school for just for the first semester. And that's what he told me. So then I told my mother and told my sisters, you know, I had four sisters in front of me that, hey, I'm going to go to secondary school. Uncle is going to pay for me. They were all excited. And as the conversations went further, they got to know that, you know, his money was enough only to be able to pay for the first semester. So some of them said, yeah, you can go. Others said, don't. Why don't you, you know, don't go? Because what if he's not able to continue? You know, why don't you learn a trade? Why do you want to go to school? Aaron, for some strange reason, I felt within me a strong feeling that I could go to school. So I took my chances and I told my sisters, I will go to school. There will be a way out of this. And also my own faith as a person, I believe deeply. And my faith has been part of all my journey. So that connection with me and my maker I believed in that. So I said, I'll go to school, see what happens. I did. And by the end of the first semester, there I was with the bursary. And as they say, the rest was history. So that was a very important part of my my story. So thanks for asking about that. You know, I, I love that story for so many reasons, but I, I think there's one piece about it to me that that, that is so important. And it's so easy to it would have been so easy for you to turn around and say you know what i don't have funding secured there's no point i'm wasting my time it it, it would be so easy to look at that situation um and and see it from the glass half empty or half full like you can say okay it's, it's worth it and this is why or it's absolutely not and this is why and it's it's one of those unique stories where you can really see um the, the thinking on both ends mm. and when I heard that story about you, I just thought, what a beautiful example of how we must never give up and how, how important it is to, to, to take advantage of the opportunities that we're given, um, because this is the type of stuff that happens. Uh, so, Charles, kudos, and, and, and thank you for, for, for living that story and for sharing yeah. with us. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. I, I think... I didn't know many things at the time. I was a young man. But I think the whole idea of belief, mm-hmm. believing that it is possible. I think I was driven at the time. I believed in it with my whole body. And as I've grown, I've come to know that what we believe is actually what shapes who we are. I've come to know that late in life, that what we believe is actually what shapes who we are. And that anything that we allow to permeate our brains and if we allow that idea to really occupy our thinking, 
That is what molds and shapes us. So if it's something good, despite challenges, despite difficulties, there's something that happens with that positive thinking, that other good things happening at the same time. What I didn't know then, I know that now. And those are some of the things that I continue to believe in. So belief is very important. That's what happened to me at that young age. And I'm glad that I, I believe in it and that to be where I am today. When you think about that small event that took place, or seemingly small, of believing and going and doing and essentially achieving and you know, getting your, your, your university education, how many more of those types of events with this amazing level of belief have taken place throughout your trajectory to get you to where you are today? And, and do you think that you'd be where you are today, leading the, literally the world's most impactful organization in terms of preventing and supporting hunger, if you didn't have this on, ongoing belief that you could ultimately accomplish the, these obstacles in your path? It's a great question, um, Aaron, and I'll attempt to share my, my thoughts. And I think it has to do with, uh, first of all, I think I'm blessed, right? Blessed in many ways because to be where I am today, again, my faith part of it is, is, a, is a huge. So believing connects with that piece mm-hmm. that despite today's challenges, tomorrow is going to be better. I've done that throughout my whole life that when I'm going to take an exam, I strongly believe I'll do well. So I prepare very well because I want to do well. So that desire to do well, that belief that I can't do well if I, you know, study or work hard is what, you know, enables me to be able to go for it. And there have been times when I have believed and have done everything where the results were not that good. But I was not dismayed because I know that I did the best I could. I've seen a lot of that throughout my whole, you know, life. Even, you know, moving to the United States, a child, a young man who's never stepped outside of Ghana and never traveled to Togo never tried to, you know, Cote d'Ivoire, you know, going to Burkina Faso. The belief that if given this opportunity to be able to come to the United States for my, you know, um, high-level education was going to be good. Others could have said no. Others could have been fearful. I wasn't. I looked forward to that opportunity. And I've seen that in my life as well. Even joining the whole humanitarian development sector was just a factor of a belief. I'd finished my PhD and... Everything pointed to me staying in academia, becoming an academician. For some strange reason, I felt strongly that I needed to be able to work in the humanitarian development field. And I promised my professors for two years and then go back. That belief is what enabled me to be able to start this journey. They were actually telling me, you know, you need to stay in academia. And I felt so strongly that I needed to test this for two years. Well, Two years has now turned into more than 20 years, you know, doing this. So again, that whole belief, believing that, you know, what I'm doing will, you know, create some impact is something that continues to sit with me today, Aaron. You know, when, when it comes to understanding hunger, how much of this are we looking at in terms of calories? How much is nutrition? How, how are we thinking about it from a holistic perspective? So. It's a, it's, a, it's a big issue today because the number of people who are hungry is actually increasing substantially, right? And so if you look at the work that all of us have done together, if I say all of us, those of us in the humanitarian development world, what we've done together, we saw a decline in the number of people going hungry every day. We saw a decline until around the year 2015 when it started rising again. And so today, as we speak, Aaron, more than 800 million people go to bed hungry every day. That's the first one. The second one has to do with the fact that without that calories, without that food that we need to be able to do our daily work. So as human beings, when we wake up in the morning, even to be able to walk from point A to B, we're burning calories, we're using energy. Without that energy being replenished, we are not able to carry out our work effectively the way we need that to do. Mm-hmm. Now, what is even more, even more important has to do with the value of that food, the value of that nutrition to us as human beings overall, especially when it comes to children. And so for children, it is beginning from when the child is conceived in the mother's stomach. 
that the mother need, needs to be fed very well so that the child will have the nourishment that the, the child needs or the fetus needs because that's where cognitive skills and others start. So when we're talking about food, it's not just the calories, but what it means for life overall. Because for life to be enjoyed by anybody else on earth, that child, that fetus, must be given the right nourishment before the fetus comes out and the child must be fed adequately till the year five. If that is not done, that child is damaged for life. So beyond calories, it's such a foundational thing for humanity, for our species on earth. Because without those cognitive skills sharpened, I mean, we're talking of the power to reason, the power to think, numeracy, literacy, literacy, everything else together. And it's beginning from zero to five. Without that nourishment, children are going to suffer. And if that is done, that child can lead a good life forever, regardless of where he or she finds himself, whether he or she becomes a farmer on the, in a smallholder farmer or whoever becomes, whatever he becomes a lawyer, that child will do well. So when it comes to food, it is that fundamental. It is so important that we continue to recognize its importance to who we are today. And Charles, just to that point, when you think about, like, you know, from my experience in rural Mbali, Uganda, as example, um, I would often walk with, the, with students to school, eight kilometers, 10 kilometers to get to school. And they, they would arrive at school and they wouldn't eat quite often until 12 o'clock or 11.45. Um, and many of them hadn't eaten the day before. What, what is the, how significant of an opportunity are we missing out on when students are not fed before they're learning? Do we understand the, the full impacts of that? Huge opportunity. We're missing a lot. When children or students do not eat before they start school. You see, if you, we've come to understand what research tells us, physiologically, the brain must be fed, not just with oxygen, but with all these nutrients for the brain to really to be able to mm. function appropriately. When children are not fed and they show up in school, it gets to a point in fact, some of them begin to sleep because there isn't enough energy. When you are in school, you're using your brain. When you're using your brain, you use a lot of energy. So when that energy gets deprived, the brain has a way of shutting itself off because there's no replenishment. Where does that replenishment come from? It has to do with your reserves. It has to do with the food that you're eating. So when the children go to school without eating, they are not, most of them are not even understanding what the teacher is teaching. And as a result of that, they don't even do well. And that is why countries or areas where there's school feeding, right? And sometimes it comes in the afternoon, right? The assumption is that the child is fed in the morning, but that in the afternoon, the school will then provide the food so that he or she can study in the afternoon. So without children eating, when they show up in school, um, huge opportunities lost with that. Right. And j just back to that point uh, about your experience with hunger, are there moments in your early life that, that you can remember that, that feeling of, of just deep hunger? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and you know, for, for our audience, many of whom will fortunately never experience that, in, in the same way that you would explain to someone what it is like to have a head cold and try sitting in on a, on a meeting, can you explain to us what it is like to be experiencing that level of hunger and trying to concentrate or to have a conversation? I'm just hoping that the audience can fully appreciate the gravity of, of what we're describing. Yeah, during those moments when your body longs for food and it's not there, there's a whole process that takes place. So first, you, you have a feeling it's going to come because you're used to it coming and it doesn't come. And then the next moment when it's not there, there's, there's your stomach, you feel it. You feel it in your brain, you feel it in your stomach. So the next thing that you tend to do is to be able to drink water. In my case, I have to go and drink water because I have to have food. 
The food is not coming. Maybe water is going to help me. So you go and you drink water. You fill your belly. You're waiting for the food. It's not there. Sometimes you get sent. And while you have even been sent in your movie, your whole body gets to a point where your whole body is beginning to shake. Shake because you're already weak from not getting the food. So even your distance, the speed with which you're traveling because you've been sent, you know, you get slowed down. If it continues for hours and hours on end, that's when you begin to have even stomach pains because the body wants food and it's not coming. And it gets to a point where there's no water to come in. Your mouth gets dry and your stomach, the pain is so you know p- painful that you have nothing to do. And then you become very drowsy. Uh, you feel, Sometimes you feel that your eyes are moving around you know, and you sit down. But that's the only thing you can do. You become sluggish. And there's no food, you're going to bed, can't even sleep well. Because all this while the pain is there, because there is no food. And remember, without that food, your whole day is gone, and sometimes the next day. So you're not even looking forward to tomorrow, because your desire to have the food today has not been satisfied. Thank you for that explanation. It sounds to me like that a lot of what Action Against Hunger is thinking about is not only the negative impact of experiencing suffering and hunger, but it is the lost opportunities that, that, that take place from a learning perspective, from an economic development perspective, from a productivity perspective, when hunger is, is rampant. Yes, you're right. But even before that, there is even the issue of you know, lives being lost because children and people were hungry. Okay, In a situation where, in my case, after a day or two, there's no food, right? It happens in many communities where you're not even, we're not getting the food that you need. It gets to the point where we are acutely malnourished. And when children become acutely malnourished, when it's very severe, it gets to a point where the body is not even able to absorb food, whether it's cassava or plantain and others. Because the body has gone through a process where it wanted those nutrients so bad it gets to a point where the nutrients were not coming. It has used the reserves. You start reducing, you lose weight significantly. You lose moisture and get, get to a point where the child is about to die. In that situation, we're, we're talking where a child is severely, acutely malnourished. And that's where with Action Against Hunger, we come in and we save those lives. And what we've done, going back to our innovation background, we provide what is called a ready-to-use therapeutic food. Mm-hmm. And within six weeks, this child who is severely malnourished and close to dying can be saved with this peanut you know, uh, paste formula, which is high in nutrients. So for me, it's about the saving lives aspect of it. If children are not fed well, they're close to dying. The second part has to do with the loss of opportunities where the child is not close to dying, but the body is so weak that when he or she goes to school, that's what's happening. He or she is not absorbing as as much knowledge that is necessary to help him or her to be able to live a good life. And it continues for a very long time. The child's future is actually diminished. And in fact, when the child is stunted, using the technical term of, you know, a child being stunted, when his brain or her brain is stunted, this is where his or her cognitive skills are so diminished that he or she is not able to do well in school. And that explains a lot of children actually, you know, you know, dropping out of school on many, many occasions. Or in some cases, even the children themselves not being able to do well in life overall. And in fact, if we continue with that, it costs all of us. Aaron, it costs all of us. When a child is stunted, it's not just the child. There's a cost to society. Let me give an example. The private sector, research that has come out, that when the private sector hire people in many of our communities, and when the people actually stunted during when they were growing up, that every year, the private sector loses 135 billion US dollars in sales by hiring children or people who were stunted in their childhood. I'd like to repeat this. 135 billion US dollars is lost every year. And the study covers 95 
low to middle income countries. This was a longitudinal study talking about the cost of stunting to the private sector. Now, that's just the private sector. What about life beyond the private sector? So there is even a cost if children are not fed well during those, those years. So, so that's, that's the cost of not incorporating prevention, that, that $135 billion. What would it have cost us to feed people so that we hadn't got to that place? It, does, it, would, it would have cost far, far less. Far less, yeah, yeah. Far less, far less overall. And even to give you an example, there's even a benefit. So even if we move from the issue of cost, there's even a benefit if we can do these hunger programs. Research is clear. A dollar that we invest in hunger programs yields 16 US dollars to the larger economy. Hmm. A dollar invested yields 16 US dollars to the larger economy. A good multiplier. This in itself is something, is, is, is good investment mm-hmm. for the world. Unfortunately, not everybody is aware of the benefits. And so guess what? Children continue to suffer. And when they continue to suffer because they are not fed well, all of us are affected from the loss in productivity. Now, to your earlier point, the, the, the formula that you were speaking about, what, what's it called again? It's called ready-to-use therapeutic food. Re- ready-to-use therapeutic food. So, so I would imagine if a, if a student or if a child needs that desperately, they, they're highly malnourished. So after you've provided them with this ready-to-use therapeutic food or formula, what preventive measures are, are put in place to ensure that they don't reach that level of critical malnutrition again? Yes. Great question. So there are two parts to this. So life overall has all these emergencies. Emergencies do occur all the time. And so when these emergencies, you know, do occur, action up against hunger's point, you know, we move in to make sure that we can provide these ready-to-use therapeutic food to stop children from dying, number one. But while we are there, because we know what led the children to be malnourished in the first place, because we know that already, while we are feeding the children, saving them from dying, we are also beginning to put in place key thing that should stop the community from going through what they went through, where the children were close to dying. And that's why we, continue, we start building resilience within the community. Because we know there will be other shocks. We know mm-hmm. there will be emergencies. And so what do we do? We work with the community members to make sure most of these places, they live in the agricultural system. So the livelihood is built in agriculture. So we work with them. If they're really in a semi-arid area, what do they need? First, we know that they need water for irrigation. And so we're able to provide irrigation to help them. Second, we know that it will be critical for, for them to be able to have access to drought-resistant crops. Mm-hmm. And so we work with institutions, uh, the research institutions, who provide us with those um, crops that are drought-resistant so that we can then help them to be able to grow. We're also able to link them up with markets so that when they, you know, their food, corn, whatever they grow actually is ready, there's a market for them to be able to sell. We also provide them with good drinking water because we know that in some cases, when there's bad water in the area and the sanitation is poor, children become affected. So we do our water and sanitation programming in those areas. So these are the things we do while we are even feeding the children who are close to dying so that we can continue to build their resilience so that when we have those emergencies, they will then be able to deal with those emergencies themselves. Understood. Okay. So the way that I'm understanding it is almost a three-prong approach. Step one is save lives. Step two is prevent whatever led to that malnutrition, which is what I think you've just described. And then the third part that I think you will be describing is this notion of sowing seeds of hope um, or or bringing sustainability mechanisms. Is that correct? Yes, correct. And so while we are in there and we're 
preventing all these programs. We whole idea of sowing seeds. And you know, literal meaning that seeds that we know that if we sow them today, they are going to sprout, they're going to do what they'll flower. And when we're not there, the communities themselves should be capable of dealing with their own issues. And one of them is irrigation. Because if you look at a lot, a lot of the places that we work in, all over the world, in these stressful situations, we find that the major factor why most of these people are not able to feed themselves is access to water, is access to irrigation. The soils are good, the soils are fertile. In living in a typical you know, agricultural area, you need that water. So for us, that is a seed that we must sow. And then as we go forward, with climate change coming, with the seeds of hope, we're using climate change as a lens through which we can do our programming. And so it's us understanding the, the terrain with, within which we work, be able to support the families and others through you know, what we call the agroforestry processes to make sure the soils are not depleted and that, in fact, even the use of nitrogen is limited because we can grow trees, legumes, that are able to enrich the soil with nitrogen. The reason I've shared this is because Action Against Hunger, we're strong innovation. Mm-hmm. Even the development of the ready-to-use therapeutic food, you go back more than 30 years, Action Against Hunger and a team of scientists, we were the ones that developed what was called, the so-called the F100 therapeutic milk. That was the foundation to develop the ready-to-use therapeutic food. When we developed it, we reduced a lot of many children dying in this community significantly. And so we continue to innovate. We continue to work with research institutions as a way of finding solutions in many of the communities that we work in so that they'll be resilient and do not go through these challenges in the future. Charles, something I'm also wondering about is, you know, obviously with climate change, the lens that you're looking through, I imagine you're going to be anticipating greater shocks, more weather events that are creating unpredictability, the the need to ensure that communities are increasingly resilient. At the same time, I, I think there are things that you can't necessarily predict or forecast. For example, the war in Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine grows 10% of the world's wheat. And I understand that a, a good proportion of that has historically been sent to, to African economies to support with food security. How has the war in Ukraine impacted food security in Africa? Huge, huge impact. Very negative impact on the economies of you know, African, you know, African countries because of that dependence. First of all, no one saw the war coming. And when it did come, we were not even prepared. And so what happens that besides the production of wheat and others, what we saw is a whole disruption in the supply chain system. So there are many things that were not coming. Let's talk about fertilizers, for example. Many of our countries depend on fertilizer to increase yields. And these countries produce a lot of the uh, nitrogen fertilizer that we use. They were not flowing into those areas. And so guess what? Even when you have water, your yields are going to be low. So most of our countries have, you know, been affected, you know, with the war. And then we also saw prices increasing significantly overnight. And so there are times when families that would have some savings, let's say, you know, $5, something that the $5 need be able to get you food, now you need $10. Now, most of these communities are very vulnerable, so they don't have those reserves. And so without those reserves, they are not able to buy those items that they need to be to feed their own families. And so we've seen significantly negative impact within the communities within which we, we, we were. They're beginning to bounce back slowly because of some of the work that we are doing, because we now know that the dependence of you know, fertilizer forever is not going to be something we will be able to afford. So can we bring in some of these agroecological solutions? to be able to then help them to be able to go forward. So those are some of the things that we continue to do to be able to help the people. And then with the whole, you know, I'll give you a specific example, you know, with the climate change and what's happening, you know, within our office in South Sudan, mm-hmm. in a particular area of South Sudan, 
normally it's a dry area. We have the rains coming in and then we crop the land and others. Now we've seen flooding. So this time it's not drought. Mm-hmm. We've seen flooding in this area for more than three years. So what would they do? Most of the people were leaving those areas, but they were leaving because the area was flooded. So guess what? Our staff then decided, why don't we try to grow rice? Because now the water is staying here all this while. So from that angle, we provided. We tested growing rice in those areas. First, they thought we were growing grass. We explained to them it wasn't grass, it was rice, and we started working with them. If you go to South Sudan today, it is one of the most important projects within that country. The communities themselves are now growing rice, and they are so happy. We've even come in with uh, rice milling, small-scale rice milling equipment to be able to help them. Now, when the rice, when the flooding is over and we get into the dry season, that is where introducing them to drought-resistant crops is also going to help them to make sure they can weather the storm. Basically saying that we just have to learn to live with nature. Mm-hmm. Whatever nature throws at us, we must be able to ready to be able to deal with it. And that's what we've done in South Sudan, you know, in this case, with the climate change, because four consecutive, you know, rains in that area has changed the whole area. So those are some of the things that we're doing, Aaron. I got to say, it's inspiring. Traditionally, you don't think of NGOs specifically of the size uh, and, and scale that, that Action Against Hunger operate in to be operating so flexibly and, and agilely and able to pivot so quickly. It, 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 it's, it's a remarkable approach. Thank you. So I guess going back to your approach, I'd love our listeners, and truthfully, I'm curious as well, I'd love just some specifics around how you save lives, how you prevent malnutrition, and how Seeds of Hope bring sustainability. So we have a number of things we do when we talk about saving lives. So let me share with you an example from West Africa. Mm -hmm. So again, living in the 21st century with access to data, access to information, access to satellite imagery, we came together, and what we did was to be able to use satellite imagery. We take the satellite image, we do the analysis, and we were able to pinpoint where pastoralists in that part of West Africa can go for pasture. By the way, a lot of these areas, these semi-arid areas in the Sahel, a lot of their livelihoods built around you know, um, livestock. So livestock play a significant role. When you see a lot of livestock dying, you can also be assured that the community is going to suffer. So in our case, utilizing data in the 21st century, satellite imagery, we were able to then pinpoint that and guide out the pastoralists to be able to go to places within this vast expanse of the Sahara, I mean the Sahel, for them to be able to have access to pasture. Using the same satellite Im- imagery, we're able to then pinpoint where they can go to to be able to water their animals. And we triangulate this information within those communities. So we're able to guide these pastoralists to go to those places where they can have pasture and they can have water. By doing so, we are preventing hunger from happening in many of these areas. So we're also beginning to save lives. Then in situations, as we're seeing in Somalia and in uh, Ethiopia and Kenya, where children are acutely malnourished, and this is where we come in with a ready-to-use therapeutic food. And then they, we do assessment within the community. We know children who are so close to dying. They come to our clinic. We support them. We feed them. And then within six weeks, they are ready. They come back, back to you know, full life. And within those communities, that's where we also begin our resilience building programs to be able to help them to be able to then deal with the situation. For example, in Ethiopia, we are actually distributing fertilizers to farmers for them to be able to grow crops. In some cases, as part of the work that we do, where there's no food, we're able to provide cash, you know, cash transfers and vouchers because we know that what they need immediately is that food to save themselves and their children. So we'll be able to provide that as well while we are also working on our resilience building programs within the community so that we can save lives while also addressing the root causes of hunger within the community. Understood. 
And fr from a sustainability perspective, in your utopian outlook on, on how you should interact with communities, do you, do you have a time frame that you want to see them build the sustainability in place one year, three years, five years? And kind of after that point, you expect that they are no longer in need of your ongoing support? Or, or how do you think about longer term engagements with these communities? It's a difficult one because most of the places that we work in are <laughs> called the last mile. No one wants to go there except us. Mm -hmm. And we go to places where it's so fragile. So many of these areas is very, very, very difficult. All right. So that's number one. Number two, I think as we work with them, every community is different. And so it's about the capacity that we're able to bring to the community or so helping them to develop their own capacity, the training component of it, helping them, gathering data and helping them to understand the context. But we also learning from them to make sure that whatever we are working with, that we can come up with a good solution to help. So in terms of specific you know, years that we may you know, spend there, there are stages. There are stages where, for example, we're doing irrigation. It may take us about probably a year or two to be able to put the systems in place. So we have it in place, and then we're working with them to be able to grow drought-resistant crops. Within you know, a season, they'll grow those crops, but they have to have access to those seeds to be able to do so. So we're moving to a third year. There are other aspects of work that we need to do in terms of supporting you know, uh, what the health system strengthening. Then mm. we work with government, because from a sustainability standpoint, we don't want to be there forever. So we also have to support government, build government capacity to make sure that when we are not there, they able to you know, deal with those situations themselves. I just went out, you know, came from a trip from Kenya, where we, some of the places that we visited, we saw nurses that we had trained. They work for the government, but we needed that we needed to train them to build that local capacity. So overall, uh, I probably would say that if we're in the area for probably for about five years, we will certainly be able to achieve a number of things done very well. And then probably the next two more years or three years to eight years, we are beginning to wean ourselves from that area so that they are capable to be able to move forward. So it all depends on the community where we find ourselves. In some communities, they have so many resources. You know, the streams are not too far away. We can quickly leave the area in those places that were, we cannot even find springs, boreholes. We cannot even tap boreholes because normally we drill boreholes about 120 meters deep. In some cases, even when you drilled 150 to 200 meters, you're not going to find water. And that situation is different. So we, we deal with it community by community. Well, something I find very unique to you. Uh, and, and I think, uh, I guess it also kind of infiltrates action against hunger, but you you just seem to have this unwavering love and passion and belief in, in what you're doing, despite it being deeply challenging work. And, and I, I, could, I could see someone being dealt the same cards that you've been dealt and saying, you know, we tried all of these different things, nothing's working. And we can't help this community. And instead, what I hear with you is, okay, well, now there's a lot of rain, so we're going to plant rice. And when there isn't lots of rain, we're going to do this. And I'm wondering, where do you find this, this ongoing, unwavering level of hope and belief? Where, where does that come from? <laughs> um, I laugh because it's, um, I think, in a way, my organization, but also personally, is just where I've come from. Mm -hmm. See, the energy and desire I'm doing this is because to whom much has been given, much is expected. So growing up, my community, they didn't give up on me. Those moments where things were difficult, where I didn't know where the next meal would come from. Cousins in the community came to my aid. And so for me, this is beyond a job. It's a calling. That because I have been helped, because people came together to help me, I owe it to everybody that I can use whatever little talent I have to make life much, much better. And so for me, the very fundamental right, the basis upon which the whole world rests, I'll tell you, is proper nutrition for children. Without that, everything else doesn't even make sense. 
And so that's what drives me and drives my organization. Many people in my organization are very, very passionate to make sure that life can be better for others. And our vision of a world free from hunger, we believe in it, that during our lifetime, we can do it, but we cannot do it by ourselves. And that's why when the opportunity comes through such you know, medium that you and I are engaging, we let others know that please join this fight because it is worthy. It is worthy because when you know your efforts are making life much better for people, that you are having a positive influence within this human ecosystem, there's joy to come from it. And it doesn't even matter, Aaron, whether we know the names of those that you are helping, it doesn't even matter. It's about what we feel in our hearts in terms of what it means for the people. And Aaron, I'll tell you, when you walk into a community that we have supported, and you have mothers and children coming around, and you engage them in discussion and joy, and they know that we came there to help them, and there's that joy, nothing compares. And so we are driven to make sure that our vision of a life in a world without hunger is possible. And there are places where we worked within this sector where hunger was prevalent, that it is no longer prevalent. So that also gives us hope that it can be done. It's about learning. It's about our own ability to be able to do more. And so we borrow from these evidence-based programs where we've seen such success and bring it to you know, communities which are quite similar for us to be able to go for. So there's this inner drive to just help you know, humanity. That's what's driving us here. Dr. Uba, you know, I, I can't think of a better place to, to wrap up the conversation for today. Uh, I, I, I would hate to say anything else that, that takes anything away from, from the last three sentences that you've said. I've, I've personally learned so much from you, and I'm sure everyone listening to this will, will agree. So thank you for taking the time to share your story, your experiences and insights. And, and thank you for, for sharing with, with us how we can all lead more impactful lives in, in the 21st century. On that note, if our listeners would like to support Action Against Hunger or learn more, where's the best place for them to, to visit? Go to our website, actionagainsthunger.org, mm-hmm. and more than happy to be able to engage. But also not just us, but anyone within the sector where we need to be able to provide help. Do the best you can, because I think individually we're all capable of making life much, much better for the others. So again, Aaron, thank you for the opportunity to be able to be part of this. And I look forward to engaging with you more. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Personally, I loved hearing from Dr. Charles about his journey coming full circle from a child who struggled to access food to a doctor helping to ensure that all students have access to food and the nutrients they require. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to us on whichever platform you're listening from and leave us a review or a comment to let us know your favorite moment or feel free to recommend a guest for a future episode. And thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. Impact in the 21st Century is a podcast by Simi Foundation, a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education and refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning materials, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to power entire schools and communities. Feel free to learn more at simbifoundation.org. And if you liked the episode, consider donating to this impactful organization. Thank you.